This is the 966 episode 101. Mr. Richard Wilson, hello. Hey. How are you? Good to see you again, always. You know, we do segments over the course of the week, so we get to visit on a regular basis. And this has been a busy week. It uh, has. Richard, we've had, I've seen you every day this week. Not that I wouldn't see you pretty much every day in a week, either digitally or in person, but this week I've seen a lot of you and it's a good thing. So nice it to see you again as well. <laughs> it's good to be, it's good to be started on our next set of triple digits. You know, I'm, I, we won't put a, we won't put a, you know, a, a, a timestamp or an estimate on when we get to 200, but let's hope we get to 200. We, and, and we're now we're on our way. I'm certain that we will. The future is bright for the 966. And it was so cool to hear from everybody in the last few days and in the uh, after our last episode, the 100th episode, which was so wonderful. Um, and just great to hear everybody. Thanks for saying congratulations. We actually thank you for listening and watching us. But uh, it was nice to hear from people uh, saying thanks and, and congratulations. So cool stuff. Good times. Yep, good times. This week, a really great conversation coming up with Colin Foreman, journalist and editor. He is the editor of the Middle East Economic Digest, known by the acronym MEAD. Just a really great conversation. He is very focused, Colin, on construction and the construction sector in Saudi Arabia and all of the giga projects and developments. So there's a lot for all of our listeners and viewers in this one. He really knows it, has his feet on the ground, and um, just a great conversation he was fun. He's like a walking encyclopedia, you know, but super current. And I, what I enjoyed is he really, he really loves this stuff. You know, he loves the construction contract. He loves, you know, so this, you know, all that's going on in Saudi Arabia and in the region and that sort of thing, but especially Saudi Arabia, it's just got to be like catnip to him because uh, he loves it. Yep. And he's been doing it for about 20 years. One interesting sort of before we recorded the conversation, Richard, I really wanted to mention this because I think it's so funny, but he's a listener of the podcast and has been for a long time, but he had never seen us or had never seen the video of the podcast, which is um, we, we have a lot of viewers in our YouTube fam, but he was like, yeah, this is really weird. It, I, it's so weird to see you guys and what you look like because I'd only listened. He said, Richard looked pretty much like he thought you would look Richard, but he said that I didn't, Lucian did not look anything like what he thought. And I was like, wait, wait a minute. What do you mean? <laughs> like, <laughs> go on. <laughs> so it was all I could think about before we started the conversation. Well, it, it was one of those things. So he said, I thought you were younger, which is, I mean, that can be taken a lot of ways. I choose to take it as very positive that you have a, a you know, a, a dynamic, young sounding voice. Um, so, you know, there you go. But yeah, it was, it was a funny start to the conversation. <laughs> yeah. And something about longer blonde hair. I don't know, but I think he was envisioning a surfer, which by the way you are that I am. Yes. But, um, yeah, I mean, maybe I'm due for a makeover, but I think it was really funny because I said back to him, um, we're just, I really wish we had gotten one of those police sketch artists to, just have you describe to him what you thought I looked like. And I would just go with that as my avatar going forward. But uh, anyway, um, that was just super fun before we got into the nitty gritty of the construction sector. So just really quickly, if you have not done so yet, please give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you're getting this or on YouTube. If you can just hit the subscribe button, that would be much appreciated. Uh, the 966 team would love that. So Thank you for everybody who's already done it. If you already done it, you don't have to do it again. But uh, yeah, so please do it if you haven't. Mr. Wilson, what do you think? Let's keep Let's going. Go. What's your one big thing this week? 
Um, well, we talked about this, and I think, and I was originally going to do it on archaeology because, and, and I may may next week, because upcoming uh, September thirteen to fifteen at the Mariah in Aula is Aula World Archaeology Summit twenty twenty three. Big deal, and as we know, as we covered, especially on a acoustic review in depth. You know, the the archaeological finds, the archaeological initiatives and that sort of thing is a big deal and as part of Vision 2030. And it's a lot of fun to see the progress. But I opted for uh, fun with the SPL, Saudi Professional League. We're, we're sort of at a little key moment here. The season has started. Transfer window is about to close. We're going to get a sort of an assessment of, you know, the transfer season, which as we all know, you know, if you're a football fan and if you read the media, it's been enormously, you know, disrupted by Saudi, you know, uh, performance and Saudi involvement. But first, uh, Saudi Pro League, as 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 we may have mentioned on the show before, uh, Saudi Pro League goes from uh, August to May. It expanded to 18 teams this year. Um Al Ittihad is out of the gate quickly. Last year's champion, four and zero, top of the table, uh, tied at least in points with by Al Ahly, which uh, fascinating enough was relegated last year. Lucian, we you know we pay special attention to the Al Fayyah Orange, who are uh, sort of bumping along at number ten. They have one win and and uh, two draws and a loss. Uh, Al Nasser is at six. That's uh, Ronaldo's team. Uh, Shabab and others are all, you know, kind of struggling. But anyway, they're off and running, and it's a really interesting season because, hey, guess what, what happened, if you haven't heard. So transfer, the transfer window closes for the Premier Leagues across Europe September 1st. There's a couple of outliers. I think Belgium is September 6th, Mexico the 13th. Qatar the 18th, UAE 21st. Saudi's transfer window closes the 7th. But most so so things can still happen. But most of the most of the damage is done. So what's the running tally right now? Uh, as of now, twenty six transfers that the Saudi Professional League has secured, which is pretty amazing. Six for Al Halal, six for Al Ahli, four for Al Nasser, and four for Al Ittihad, three for Al Ittifaq. The interesting thing about there is Al-Halal, Al-Ahli, and Nasser, and Ittihad were the four teams with PIF invested in. Ittifak, Ittifak is doing this independently. Um, they nabbed players, oh, you know, from a who's who's list. They nabbed them from Chelsea, Liverpool, Real Madrid, Inter Milan, Celtic, Lyon, Newcastle United, Bayern, Barcelona, PSG, Manchester City, Manchester United. I mean, they got them from everywhere. Um, and it's really interesting. What what's your guess on how much they spent in total for these twenty six transfers? Just this year alone. Just this year alone. I would say half a billion dollars. Pretty good. I love these quizzes, by the way. I know. I was, I, and by the way, for our listeners and viewers, I, these weren't like pre like asked questions. I'm no, totally uh, shooting the talk. I've no, no idea. Nine hundred million. <laughs> now, just Whoa. just for the fun of it, in the Premier League, all the Premier League clubs, how much have they spent on this transfer window? Just for a point of reference, to bring in talent to the EPL, or yes, exactly. Um, hmm. 
I would say 150 million. 2.45 billion. Oh, so they're way ahead. Okay. <laughs> and that gives you, I mean, I, I mentioned that very specifically because there's all this, you know, you know, whining about how, you know, the Saudis are breaking the league and blah, 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 blah. Well, as we've talked about, the European League and the Premier League has been doing this for years, outspending everybody. Yeah. Um, the fascinating thing about that is almost close to 1.1 billion of that European League spending is from your boy at Chelsea. Chelsea's gone off and I assume they're going to win the world because they spent they spent over one, over one billion dollars on on transfers for this this year's roster. Wow, that's insane! <laughs> this insane. But here's the thing: this is this is the reason I chose this topic today. And we got another quiz, and I'm going to tell you what the and I'm going to I'll give you uh, I'll give you some some factoids. So there's 18 teams in the SPL. There's 539 players. 150 of them are foreign, so about 28%. Average age is 27.7 years old in the Saudi professional league. 26 transfers. We all know Ronaldo and Neymar. Ronaldo's last year, but Neymar, uh, Benzema, Conte, you know, really big names. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, so what's the average age of these 26 transfers? Ooh, I would say 31. This is what's interesting. The average age is 27. Oh. And that's why I'm, that's one of the most impressive uh, to me because, you know, they're getting pinged. Oh, okay. All these, all these faded old superstars, you know, well, you know, we're happy to see them go from European league. Their day is done. Their glory is gone. You know, go play in Saudi Arabia and make a buttload of money. Um, no, they're getting some young guys. And uh, like I said, average age is twenty-seven of the of the twenty uh, of the twenty-six transfers. Sixteen or thirty or younger, and that includes people like I'm going to butcher these names. I apologize. Jota, who came from Celtic, he's twenty-four. Ruben Neves came from Premier League Wolverhampton. He's twenty-six. He was a captain of that Wolverhampton side. Malcolm, who uh, leading scorer in the Russian league last year from Zen at St. Petersburg, 26. Fabinho, I don't know. <laughs> I'm sure that's terrible. <laughs> what, is, what is it? It's, it's usually me, by the way, that is ruining people's <laughs> names. So I'm, I'm enjoying this very Fabinho, much. Fabinho, I don't know. He's a Brazilian <laughs> midfielder. You know, so he's, he's 29. And, uh, you know, they got him from Liverpool. So... So, I mean, there, there's some young blood in all this, and it makes it really interesting. And one of the things the the, the, the uh, Saudi national team uh, uh, has a new coach, and, uh, and uh, Hervé Renard, the Frenchman who went took them to the World Cup last year, has gone on to, to, to lead the French women's team, which is pretty cool. Uh, the new coach just signed for a $27 million contract. And he is, uh, I'm looking for his name. I'm missing his name. Oh, uh, Roberto Mancini. Oh, that's right. All right, so picking it up. So the new coach of the Saudi national team, Roberto Mancini, Italian, um, just came in. He paid a, a lot of money, but he's under a lot of pressure because Hervé Renard did a really good job. Uh They've got the the Asian Cup in January. They haven't won it in 27 years. 
Saudi Arabia, you know, and he's talking about, you know, really that's what they're shooting for. And he's also, he also commented right out of the gate. He says, look, all these new players in the league is only going to help us, us being the Saudi professional league and we'll lift up, you know, the quality of the play around the league. It will really be a boon for, for local players, Saudi players. And uh, it'll just make my job that much easier. And I, I, I don't think he would ever say his job's going to be easy, but um, it's going to be, it's going to be tough, but but so all these things is just fascinating when you look at it, you know, you just see the headline, Saudi Arabia buying this, buying that. So, so obviously they come into a distant second. They're not even second. They're, they're behind the European Premier League. But the people they brought in, the talent they brought in is not just a bunch of old guys past their prime. And, and it's spread around the league, sort of spread around the top of the league in terms of big spending clubs. Uh, but it's a really interesting first transfer season, and there may be some more to come. I thought you chose this topic because it's super fun to talk about and everyone <laughs> loves football, uh, European football and whatever you use soccer. We use soccer and football interchangeably on this podcast. So if you hear soccer, then football was intended, but not American football because we are both American football fans. That is super confusing, but um, everyone loves it when we talk about football. So this is so good because this is sort of image shattering. I mean, just as you outlined, young players not spending as much as the EPL, but spending a fraction of what the EPL did. They're just sort of entering the free agent transfer market. They're not dominating it like you might glean from the headlines. And I should note, it, note by the way, that if you try to like Google or like search a news uh, aggregator algorithm for Saudi Pro League or EPL, the amount of media and the amount of publishing happening on football is unbelievable. I mean, there is so much out there on football because everybody loves football. Everybody follows it. Everybody has a team, not as much in the US, but we're the outlier by a lot. So yeah, just trying to get a grasp on what's happening, not just in football in general, but in the Saudi pro league right now, as it's kicking off is when you said that you were going to do this as your one big thing, I was like, yes, because I get my free update <laughs> here. And I think all of our listeners and viewers do too. I'm like, okay, go ahead. This reminds me a little bit of the live golf wash up image that uh, sort of, you know, once live took off, they signed all these players. There was sort of the rumor that was incorrect going around about live golf players that they were sort of past their prime, taking the money and going off in the sunset. And then Brooks Kepka wins the PGA championship and all of a sudden the rumor's dead. And now you have Brooks Kepka on the Ryder Cup team for the US, which was announced this week. But back to football, everybody starts rolling their <laughs> eyes and talking about golf. Um, this is really this is really good, Richard. Of course, the latest news as well. We saw some of it this week. We try not to include speculative reporting on this subject, especially in the Sustig News Review, our daily newsletter, which you can subscribe to at sustg.com. Just a great resource, a great aggregation of everything on Saudi Arabia. We try not to include speculation on Saudi football because there is so much. But this week, there are rumors that Mo Salah uh, may quit Liverpool to go to Saudi Arabia, which would be a huge signing for the Saudi Pro League. Um, and that would be interesting to see. So the other thing too, Richard, and I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about this, is now that the Saudi Pro League is sort of gaining momentum and has, uh, you said, 900 million in transfer signings. You've got all these new coaches coming in. You, you have a rejuvenated league with PIF owning some of the teams now. They're now bidding to go into the UEFA Champions League. 
and yeah, or they're interested in doing it. And that's not a surprise, of course, because they they have a lot of good players now, and one or two of their teams may actually have a have a shot at it now that they have some of these big marquee names. And as you noted, with uh, based on quotes from Mancini, that the local talent will start to really develop now that the league has been totally you know, brought to life, rejuvenated. You could use a lot of words to describe it. Um, just upgraded. wanted to, upgraded. There you go. Um, there you go. Just wanted to add this to um, it's and I've seen some sort of, you know, like online, like images of I haven't watched any of it, but um, I've seen some of like the new jerseys coming out. I actually texted um, the CEO of CAFT, Gautam Sachital, because I saw the new CAFT Al Nasser branded jerseys on Ronaldo. And I was like, dude, these are so cool with calf across. Um, I think they won yesterday for nothing. And he was like, yeah, these are sick. Aren't they? And it's like the calf logo is on the front. Uh, he uh, will very likely be joining us in a few weeks on the podcast, which is exciting. We talk about calf and everything and that partnership. But um, just yeah, Richard, really useful, really helpful. I know the fans love the football. We get a lot of feedback on these segments on football. I would like to watch some some more of it. It's well, yeah, we have to. I don't even know. I don't. I don't know if they have IMG. Obviously, went out and got a lot of uh, carriers, uh, including Canal and D D A Z N. I don't know how to pronounce that, but I don't know if they have a U.S. carrier so to watch it. And I would love to see it. But on the, you know, we have to make sure when. You know, in terms of the King of Bella Financial District, when he comes on, I'm excited he's coming on, that we don't just talk about football. <laughs> but here's the thing. This is a cool thing. So in the Sustig Review today, today's edition, there's an article there, uh, Al Nasser, you know, Al Nasser started out, they lost two, they won two now, so they're even up in there. Like I said, they're sitting at six on the table. Um, uh, but apparently, and, and Ronaldo, I think, had a, hat trick in this last one in any case so he, he's broken out a new dance so he's got a signature dance and he broke out a new dance which is sort of a take off the ardha which is uh the sword dance but if you if you go find the video and they'll show it and 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 what's really cool all right he's doing it which is kind of neat it's just a snippet and of course this goes and his social media goes everywhere everyone sees it the roar of the crowd i mean the place is just rocking and when he does this it's like you know, and, and this is, you know, the fourth game of the season, uh, you know, against a, a, a you know, a, a lower echelon team. Um, it's it's just exciting stuff. And I, I, just, I wanted to make a quick point on that live reference that you made. And one of the reasons I, I, I did this, one of the reasons I pointed out that, you know, 900 million is a boatload of money and Saudi Arabia is now a big player, but they still aren't the major player is, you know, all the clickbait that went in with live when they tied up with PGA. And obviously that's not been confirmed. You know, you know, Saudi Arabia takes over golf, blah, 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 blah. Just silly, silly stuff. Um, and as I've said before on this show, the P, that, that deal is 100% good for PGA. They come out the winner in almost every regard. Live, I think, gets what they want. Um, but, you know, Saudi Arabia is not taking over anything. They're, they're, they're sort of, you know, elbowing in. And you know, wanting to be part of this, and let's you know, they want to play on the they want to play on the pitch too, uh, but they're not taking over anything. Uh, so it's just all a fascinating exercise. Yeah, they're doing it for the investment because it's a good investment because there's all these other benefits, and it's something that we've known and doing this podcast, doing our newsletter, doing this for more than a decade for you longer than that. We've known that, but 
it's so much easier to take the easy way out and just kind of cherry pick the information you want and just say, Hey, this is what's happening. You know, I follow the PGA. So this, you know, and it's quick, it's amazing how quick the, especially in sports, the rumor mill can be because you have all of these individual podcasts, people on social media that are just doing their own thing and there's no fact checking and they have large audiences that people trust what they're doing. So it's, it's kind of, it's just the way it is the nature of the beast, but eventually the truth comes out. You mentioned the PGA, Live deal is not yet done, but I mean, it's, it's heading in that way. And there's, you know, there's some questions and stuff they have until the end of the year. And it, it looks like it will happen. I mean, the, it, there's no reason to think it won't, but you know, you know, the heat, the heat around it, the, the heat around it has gone down. Temperature has been turned down considerably. Mm-hmm. The players themselves seem to be pretty happy with it. Now, once they learn more, I mean, Congress will get its say because Congress always gets its say and, and, and there may be, you know, department of justice issues, but yeah, I mean, it, it's nice that you know the temperature has been turned down a little bit, and it can it can proceed you know based on its merits one way or another. Mm-hmm. Good one, Richard. Um, very excited to see the league play out. We've got if anybody is listening to this that's in the U.S. and the the breakdown of our audience is almost half and half Saudi and U.S. and then there's these other countries 90, 98 other countries plus around the world. But <laughs> plus, there's a yeah. lot of U.S. and Saudi people. If anybody is in the U.S. that is watching the SPL can let us know where we can watch yeah. it. We'll watch it because uh, I want to see it. But I think days in and you mentioned that they're not really here. You need like a special satellite dish. You know, it's like the yeah. size of your house to get. But um, anyway, good one, Richard. My one big thing this week, an exciting update on the new Maraba project for Riyadh. The project was announced February 16th with the launch of the new Maraba development company. And the project is massive. It aims to develop the world's largest modern downtown in Riyadh. We did a segment on this after the launch of it in February. Just so much to talk about. And that segment is still good. I just rewatched it to get a little prep for this segment, which is a nice little feature of doing this is it's all there on our YouTube channel. And if you're watching on YouTube, you'll see some art and renderings of the projects. It's just it's just ambitious and it's amazing looking. It's not just the cube, which is something that I am super excited about and interested <laughs> in the new macab, which is how you say it. Also fun to say that's the large cube in the middle of it that we'll have, uh, if it's to completion, we'll be able to fit 20 empire state buildings within. Um, but it's the whole neighborhood. And we'll talk about this with Colin Foreman here in a little bit about how it's not just the cube, but the entire sustainable development around it. It's like a whole district or neighborhood. The project will be built around the concept of sustainability featuring green areas, walking, cycling paths. This will all enhance the quality of life by promoting healthy lifestyles, community activities. It really is just like one big community. And then some data on it, 25 million square meters of floor area, 104,000 residential units, 9,000 hotel rooms, 980,000 square meters of retail space, 1.4 million square meters of office space. Uh, of course, 620,000 square meters of leisure assets. I didn't convert this into feet. So for the U.S. people, sorry, um, 1.8 square <laughs> million square meters of space dedicated to community facilities. So the project's budget was set at, and if you're not sitting down, find a chair, $48 billion. I can't tell right now if that seems low or high, but the vision here is massive. And again, it's just so cool. Um, and just as an aside, before I get to the news this week, when this is built, and I think we can use when now instead of if based on the news that came out this week, but this will be, I think, a reason to visit Saudi Arabia if you're a global world traveler, because 
this will be worth seeing. It'll be unlike anything else in the world. You'll have the new Mukaab, which you'll be able to see from the plane ride in. It'll be so massive. Um, it just, if they do this, when they do this, I should say, this is going to be a, a, a thing to see in Saudi Arabia. It's going to be like the Burj, but times a hundred, like a thing to go do. So on the news this week, really good news for U.S. Saudi commercial relations for us, Richard, as fans of the company and for mm. us as observers of Saudi Arabia who are interested in what's going on there, Bechtel, the U.S.-based leading global construction and engineering behemoth, was awarded a key contract by the new Maraba development company to provide project management services for the new Maraba. Bechtel will provide PMC services for the master plan and site-wide infrastructure for the project. The news was released this week and included, as big deals like this often do, an image of a signing ceremony between the two parties. And of course, signing that deal in the photo release was none other than Mr. Jacob Mum, a previous special guest on the 966, and a friend and great guy as well. Of course, as soon as I saw this, I texted Jake, congratulations. And after a bit of back and forth, he said it was, I said it was the second biggest news for Bechtel recently behind the talent grab in bringing our friend Abdul Rahman Al-Kaban back to Saudi Arabia to work with him at Bechtel in the kingdom. <laughs> I only meant that partially in jest, by the way, the opportunity to work with either of those guys is a privilege. But back to the deal here, the choice of Bechtel for this role, I think is significant. I think it brings the, if bringing the if when reference I made back earlier, I think observers now can start using when for this project because Bechtel is, is the choice for PMC roles like this around the world if you wanna get the job done. I don't think we're going out on a limb on a limb saying that either. I think if you want to get the job done right and done well, they're really the safest choice. They've been doing it for over 80 years in Saudi Arabia. And actually, if you just look at all they've done in Saudi Arabia alone, it sort of indicates that authorities are taking this project very seriously and they really want to complete it either by the deadline or have a pathway to completing it on time. Bechtel has been in the kingdom for 80 years um going back to the first oil refinery they built there at Ras Tanura you've got Jubail Industrial City these are projects that are not just little projects in the kingdom although they've done some of those airports and stuff those aren't little projects either but these are massive developments that include housing whole communities so they have experience with this Ras Al Khair two lines of the Riyadh metro which should be opening soon and we did ask Jake about that in the episode with him I We'll suggest this probably more than once in this segment, but please go back and listen to our conversation with Jake Mum from Bechtel because we get into all of this stuff. King Khalid and King Fahd International Airports, design, project management, and build of NEOM's transport power and water infrastructure. There's a, another huge job. Uh, and actually, as part of that, too, when we spoke with Jake Mum, he talked a little bit about the line and that they had already started working on the spine for the line, which is interesting. December of 2022, Bechtel was appointed as a project management consultant for Trojina, a year-round mountain destination in the Neom region. And the company has already done work with SAMI as well, the Saudi Arabian military industries, company owned by the PIF. So now we add to that list, one of the most ambitious projects happening in Saudi Arabia and really in the world to date, which is the new Maraba. The award comes as Bechtel celebrates its 80th year. And I just... So I wanted to wrap up with this. We have Colin Foreman on the program next with me. We asked him a little bit about the new Raba, but he's the editor of me, the Middle East Economic Digest. Just a few weeks ago, he featured an item with Jake Mum, and Jake is quoted heavily uh, in it on Bechtel's work. And Jake, uh, the quotes that he uses of Jake echo very closely to what he told us on the 966 a few weeks earlier. He said, quote, 
We do projects, yes, we are builders and engineers, but we are also trying to do projects that have a positive impact. We are selective about the projects we work on, and we try to find projects that have a long-term positive impact. If your goal is to have a positive impact in a community and to improve lives and livelihoods, then public infrastructure is what you should be doing. And if you are doing infrastructure, where is a better place in the world to do that? Saudi Arabia. So congratulations to Jake Mom, to Abdurrahman Al-Kaban and the Bechtel team for this award and their success. This is cool and just kind of thrilled to hear that they will be the ones working on this along with the new Maraba development company, because to me, it means, all right, this is going to happen. So strap in. But uh, that's my one big thing this week. <laughs> and a good one. We, I mean, it, it captures everything we love. It's a U.S. corporate doing doing well in Saudi Arabia. Um, and the only thing about it, absolutely, I have, you know, you can't really get a more uh, professional, accomplished, reliable partner than Bechtel. I don't know, you know, as as Colin Foreman said, you know, we have to be we have to be careful in assigning, you know, completion dates to projects of this size. So I don't know if it'd be here at 2030 or whatever, but I do know with Bechtel, you know, as as a project as a project manager and with the commitment we've seen from Saudi Arabia on so many of these things, the chances are much increased. You know, you mentioned that. You know, I get excited about it because you mentioned that you know if you're traveling to 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 Riyadh, it's a must see, and the and the really important thing I think here is that you're living in Riyadh. You know, it it really adds to the quality of life experience that you might be able to enjoy in Riyadh, and 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 I know you know we like the mukab and we like the the we like the you know the top line bells and whistles of something like this because it's just so enormous and so impressive. But, you know, the the opportunity to, you know, put in 104,000 residential units, 9,000 hotel rooms, but, you know, in a, in a, in a well-planned, well-thought-out, you know, urban environment, it, you know, it, you very rarely do you get that. And this is a city that wants to go from currently 7.5 million to 12, 15 million, you know, and everything they're doing now in terms of expansion uh, is intended to be consistent with things like Salmani architecture, which we've talked about, uh, sustainable, walkable, livable, all these things you want in an urban existence. And it's, it's an opportunity to really remake Riyadh. Um, so, I mean, it, it's, it's very exciting. It'll be fun to watch. I, I, I like you, um, Get excited, you know that that, that this the episode we did with Jake, and you you your quotes were were excellent. I mean, it really shines through how much he enjoys the opportunity to impact the quality of life through infrastructure, and it it, it really was apparent is apparent, you know, how much attention they pay and he pays. It's, all right, let's. Let's do this. This is great. You know, look, our bottom line is improved by this. Our relationship is improved by this. It's great for the corporate thing. But hey, look at this. We're right in the middle of a transformation where we can impact and and engineer and, you know, sort of a, be a lead proponent of a whole different way of life and a whole different way of living. And it's so exciting. And, you know, we get excited for Jake and our friend Abdul Rahman to be at the heart of this. I just think it's so neat. Uh, so, you know, beyond the, you know, rah-rah U.S. corporate, rah-rah Vision 2030, 
I, I love that these the kind the, this quality of people is involved. You know, we happen to get to know them, so it's a privilege. But I, I love that one, and and all the new Maraba. I think we're going to see a lot of it. I think a lot of the coverage will probably be the top line glitchy glitchy stuff. But the underlying fundamentals are what I think is really important, and that's probably what Bechtel will will pay attention and get right. And I just yeah, the, the great points. Just wanted to add to that, you know. And we talk about this again a little bit with Colin. I'm trying to foreshadow so much, but it's you know haters are going to hate, and when you talk about Saudi Arabia building new cities from scratch or new developments from scratch and new neighborhoods from scratch. There is a, a lot of different ways that they could go with with what they're doing, but they've chosen to do it, all of them sustainably with the you know people living and working in the same community in mind with some of the world's best architects involved with some of the world's best EPC companies involved in, in getting them off the ground. They're they're, I think it's objective to say that they're doing it right. And to focus on the deadline is, as I, I admit that I kind of often do, because I'm like, well, are we going to, I got to catch a flight. Are we going to, am I going to see it when I land type thing? It's like, well, it's more just like, you know, you don't want something to drag on and on and on. You want to see it get done. But at the same time, like, as you point out, Richard, I think just rightfully that it's not the ultimate timing of the delivery. It's the, destination of the delivery and the progress toward it that is very meaningful and they're doing these things right and that's what's so cool and it is a theme of this podcast and a theme of saudi arabia since vision 2030 that if you're going to say that you do something you're going to do it and only then can you build up the credibility of hey we're going to launch this new airport it's going to change the world by 2050 2050 is a long time from now but i mean if they're you, delivering you know. on some of these projects, yeah, it'll be here before we know it, right? <laughs> well, you got to start. You, you got to start. start. Yeah, that's right. The, um, so, yeah. You know, for reference, and we're talking about, about Bechtel, they signed the uh, the contract to begin the Riyadh Metro in 2013. They're going to deliver that this year. You know, that's that's 109 miles, you know, of, of track, you know, six lines, 84 stations. It will transform Riyadh a decade later. Is that a, that's a reasonable timeline for this kind of project. $22 billion plus project, one of the largest in the world, probably the largest at the time. Um, and, and, you know, so, and obviously Bechtel is doing Trojina and any number of other things. So, so you, you, you know, you, what you want is professional, capable people helping you accomplish the task and understand that, you know, there's a mark that you want to hit and you probably, you know, there's a lot of things, but, you know, over the course of a decade or whatever, there's a lot of things that interrupt that, you know, achieving that mark. I will say an interesting thing is that Riyadh Metro, and this is how things paced, and, you know, so the Riyadh Metro envisioned in 2013, they lay out the, the map and, you know, we're going to do this and that. And, you know, Bechtel and its partners go about accomplishing this. Riyadh Metro doesn't have stops in the new Marabba. The new Maraba is farther north. You know, you know, you know, it's above that northern ring road. So it's a little north and a little west, you know, at King Salman and King Khalid. And does this mean they're going to extend? <laughs> There's more work to be had on the subway, which is logical. I mean, you know, around here, around DC, you have new lines over the course of, of, of time, you know, new lines added out to Dulles and elsewhere. Um, so uh, it, it's just, you know, it'd be interesting to see how all this expands. And how all of this links together, but this is an exciting project for sure. 
It's just, it's so cool. And, you know, we've talked about this before, but you have, and, and you just highlighted it, that all these new neighborhoods that are going to come on, the, you know, new downtown and you have CAFT and CAFT is expanding. You've got Daria, these other neighborhoods in Riyadh. And it's like, well, all of a sudden there's no like one cool place to live above the others because there's all these different offerings. I mean, Daria will be like uh, Beverly Hills essentially, or at least that's what it's, they're aiming to be. Um, and I don't know how accurate that comp is jerry and zarello actually said that and i was like oh cool so uh, well, at, least, at least at least yeah. jerry terrace you know yes. that part of it yeah. the other part is kind of historical and archaeological yeah i don't know how very exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you know unless you're talking about la brea tar pits you know that's, right that's <laughs> <laughs> yeah um congrats to them um my son pierce is obsessed with what, what he calls uncle ramen and uh, he's so funny because he he's not even three, but I'll ask him questions about like, oh, who's coming this weekend to visit or but then other random things like, hey, do you want to go camping? Who do you want to go camping with? And he'll say Uncle Ramen. And I'm, <laughs> it's just so funny. I text him every time it happens. He loves Abdurrahman. So anyway, congrats to them. Good, uh, good people. Good, good people uh, doing good work. So, you know, you know, I actually do think that maybe Abdurrahman should, should take Pierce and Coco camping while you and Sophie go on a date. Wouldn't that be a good thing to that do? Would, that would be a good friend uncle? Isn't that what Isn't that what uncles do? Yeah. Well, I mean, he hasn't, you know, Pierce already considers him an uncle, but he's going to have to do that if he wants the official title. Because No, uh, I mean, you know, you got to step up if you're uncle. So <laughs> I, I'm just saying, I'm not sure where Abdurrahman stands on this, but, you know, camping probably would be a nice thing to do for an uncle. Indeed. If I bring the family to Riyadh in January, which is maybe a thing, then he can definitely pitch in and let us have a little date night because, um, uh, you know, he's he moved away and I guess it was April or earlier this spring or May. So, yeah, um, I'm interested to see how long Pierce hangs on to Uncle Ramen and, and keeps mentioning him. And I think it's well, in course, part because he gave him a really awesome fire truck. So, <laughs> well, well, you know what? You know, if Abdurrahman gave me an awesome fire truck, you would. I'd want him for an uncle, too. <laughs> so, he's never given me an awesome fire truck. Uh, but. <laughs> that's hilarious. Okay, let's get to it. Our conversation with Colin Foreman, just so fun. And and I think, Richard, we may have a, a future repeat guest in the mix here, in the making, I should say, because he was great. And he'll, uh, as a journalist, he's got his finger on the pulse. So this was wonderful. And, and we hope to do a lot more of this. It will, and we're, if you know, if we beg, he'll maybe be a regular. But boy, he's he's awesome, and and we'd like to get him on on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. Enjoy. We are thrilled to welcome onto the nine six six, Mr. Colin Foreman, journalist and editor for the Middle East Economic Digest, known by the acronym Mead. Mead, of course, is the highly respected business intelligence publication for the MENA region, established in nineteen fifty seven with a subscription magazine and website, a brand of executive conferences, events, summits, and more. Colin has 20 years of experience reporting on projects and business in the Middle East and North Africa. And Colin is also, quite importantly, I may add, a regular listener to our show here, The 966. Colin, so nice to see you again, and welcome onto The 966. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Can we start off the conversation with your assessment is what we talk about all the time on the 966, which is Vision 2030. And we talk about not only the, um, you know, the, the, the hard aspects of it, the, the metrics, the goals, but the aspirational aspect. But you've seen major, uh, you know, national initiatives like Dubai and the Emirates. 
in the region. Can you, where does this fit? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 first of all, thank you very much for the introduction. It's very, uh, very nice to hear those kind words. And uh, we're very fortunate to be in a region that's very exciting. So there's lots of things to cover all the time. And, you know, it, it, it's something that's a very, it's a very engaging market to, to be involved in. In terms of what's happening with Saudi Arabia at the moment, I think if we just get back to the very, very basics to try and understand what's happening. But I think the thing you've got to really think about with Saudi Arabia is if we've got the GCC, certainly the GCC, Saudi Arabia is the largest economy in the GCC and it's the largest population in the GCC. So the first part of answering your question when you said, you know, how important is it? You've got the largest country in the sixth nation block, which is embarking on a major economic transformation. So that effectively means that that's got to be much more important than what happens in the other countries, just, just by nature of its size. Mentioned population, but on top of that, the geography is also a lot larger. So that brings in a whole lot of new uh, new issues. So you've got things like regional development, which is a lot different to what you get in the other countries. So the, the sort of size of the population uh, and then the geography. In terms of um, uh, Vision 2030 itself, uh, it's an interesting question at US. My my feeling on it, there's, there's sort of two parts to Vision 2030 and they kind of, although they're very connected and the, the two things are happening at the same time, the first thing that came up with Vision 2030, if we just wheel back to when it first came and it was first launched, was in a position of really quite difficult economic times for Saudi Arabia and the rest of the region. We had low oil prices and budgets were really under pressure. We had quite a lot of legacy spending that governments were still um, struggling to deal with. So there was a lot of things uh, like budgetary cuts, reductions in capital spending, reducing sort of uh, public spending on salaries, all this sort of stuff it was a real problem for the region. So Saudi Arabia took a very brave decision to try to try and deal with this and, and made some actually quite difficult decisions in those days at a time of um, really not very favorable um, uh, economic outlook. What then happened in uh, 2017, as you started to get a lot of what we call the sort of the Vision 2030, the Giga projects started to be launched. And at the beginning, they were very much just announcements that were, we sort of thought they'd happen, but we, we didn't really understand fully what they were and how important and how large they would be. So uh, from memory, I think the first one, the, the first Giga project to be launched was the Red Sea. But at the time, it, it was it just felt like a bit of the Red Sea coast and some islands. We didn't really understand the magnitude and, and how transformative they were going to be, really. So for me, the, there was the, the sort of the economic transformation and, and the, the sort of rewiring of the economy. And then what followed on from that, which is obviously connected, was the projects that will allow the, the economy to do that even further. So for me, that's really what Vision 2030 is um, all about. And in terms of uh, the last two to three years we've really seen a significant ramp up in in project and construction activity in the kingdom so to give it some context in terms of, of the emirates i was very fortunate to report on on dubai really for the, the whole of that construction boom that it had up until the global financial crisis so back then there was three palm islands that were under development there was the world's tallest tower the burj khalifa the world's largest shopping mall a metro system being built you know it really was a, a very busy time my simple way of ask, answering the question in terms of, of context is saudi arabia is really 
collection of Dubai-sized projects that are going on at the same time. So if we take something like Neon, for example, we could probably say that if you look at all the things that are going on there, that's going to be about the size of the Dubai market once it gets up to critical mass. You've then got other markets like Jeddah and Riyadh, which are more established, where there's a lot of construction already uh, going on and there has been for a number of years. They're markets themselves that could, could well be the size of Dubai going forward as well. And then we've got other projects dotted around the kingdom in, in slightly more re remote locations that possibly aren't quite as big as Dubai on their own, but are still significant undertaking. So I, I think really, if you want to answer that question in terms of how significant is Saudi Arabia, it's a collection of very big construction markets all going on at the same time in one country. The scope of it is extraordinary, and we struggle here to sort of try and wrap our minds around it. And that is interesting because you're saying that, you know, this is not, we want to focus, come back to Riyadh, but this is not just in Riyadh. This is Neon, this is Jeddah, Red Sea. And then obviously they're, they're uh, you know, looking at uh, the, the Southwest as well. And so they're, they're, they're advancing on all fronts at the same time. Yeah, I, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but last year, just as a, a, a sort of playing around with that same sort of question in my own head, I, I thought I'd look at what are the biggest countries in, in in the region in terms of construction activity, and this was contract awards last year, and NEOM itself was one of the largest. If you sort of took NEOM and separated it out from uh, from the rest of the Saudi market, was was larger than a lot of other countries in the region just on its own. So that gives you an idea of the it gives you an idea of the scale that's going on. We were laughing last a couple episodes ago, Lucian, when we were sort of sort of frequently the comparables for for uh, Saudi projects are are uh, states or countries. You know, like Belgium you know, normally. Yeah, Red, yeah. Red is the size of Belgium, and Neom yeah. is the size of West Virginia, and, and you know, so that gives you an you know an insight as to the, the scale of this. Uh, one of the it, it's also reflected in this, what seems to be just a, a, a tremendous acceleration in giga project, giga project contract award. So from 2017, it, it, you know, to the middle of 2022, it has sort of inched up to about $20 billion in total contract awards. Since the middle of 2022, it's bumped up to 36. I mean, it's, it's just the... It's, the I, I ran the numbers just the other day. It's up at 42 billion there. So, so double, basically double in a year. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think I love talking about construction. Construction is my background, so I'm happy to talk about that. But I think it's really important with these giga projects when you, when you visit them, they're not the first time I, I went to Neom, you think that it's just a massive construction site, which is what I was expecting. But the, probably my main takeaway from going there is it's a lot more than that. There's things like airlines, film studios, lots of employment and lots of people working there that really have got nothing to do with construction. So yes, they are very, very, very big construction projects that are going on, but there's also all this sort of, um, business activity and economic development that's going on surrounding that at the same time. So I think sometimes as much as I'd like to promote the construction and talk about the construction, it, it's a much bigger story than just some construction projects. Absolutely. Um, you and uh, your colleague, Yasser Iqbal, wrote, penned a, an article in a, in a recent Mead, um edition on Saudi Arabia's $1 trillion capital. Yes. You talked about the extraordinary investment going into Riyadh and 
the goals that are mm-hmm. extraordinarily ambitious. Can you share some of that article with us and your thinking? Yeah, I mean, th- very simply, I mean, it's it, it's the largest city in the GCC already, and it's it's looking to double its population by by twenty thirty. That's the goal, which is incredibly ambitious. If you if you look at you know urban development and the pressure that's going to put on existing infrastructure, et cetera, et cetera. So that that's the the main starting point. But then on top of that, there's a lot of major projects that are going on. So there's uh, Diria Gate, for example. Uh, King Abdullah Financial Districts opening up. There's a lot of there's a lot of projects coming up that will support the infrastructure space. There's King Salman Park, uh, Sports Boulevard, a lot of major projects going on. And then at the same time, which I think is perhaps a, even more interesting and, and perhaps even more transformative in terms of Saudi Arabia's image in front of the rest of the world, there's this expo bid. So there's an expo master plan. And there's going to be a lot of development around Expo if Saudi Arabia is selected for, uh, to host Expo, which I think is being decided at the end of this year. There's also talk of um, uh, Football World Cup bids. So, that, you know, they, they could be hosting, you know, a very major global sporting tournament uh, in a few years' time as well. So really it's uh, the, the, the population side. What does that mean in terms of infrastructure? And then all the, the the other things that are coming along with it, I, I think really you're going to see a, a city that over the, the last 50 years has been growing, but it's really been a city that you've really only gone to Riyadh if you're doing business there or if you're from Riyadh. It's not really been somewhere that people really go to Riyadh. You know, people I know where I come from in the UK tend not to, tended not to have visited Riyadh unless they've they've gone there for work. And I think that could well change with all these things that are going on. It, it's going to become a much more outward-looking city and, and, and welcoming people from, from all over the world if these events start going forward. And it will become a, a much more global city in terms of size, scale, and, uh, and just sort of personality, really. Does it, you've also written, you, you've written extensively about the, the scale and scope of the, the investments and the construction goals. You've also talked about the resources. Are there resources available? I mean, this this is a huge ask. Is it? Is it? Are they capable of doing it? Yeah, I mean, I mean that, this really has been a question that we first flagged really since the first Giga projects got launched in 2017. It, it was just to give a little bit of context to that uh, to that story. If you look back, there's previously two very large construction companies in Saudi Arabia that really dominated the market and had a a very leading market position. One of those has scaled back significantly and the other one's gone out of business. So if you imagine a marketplace where you had the two largest players are no longer functioning anywhere near the capacity that they used to. So you've got a a market that's, um, uh, its capacity has been diminished significantly. And then at the same time in 2017, you knew that should all these things go ahead, there's going to be a massive increase in, in requirement for resources. And, and that's exactly what's happened. And, and this is a, a challenge that, that Saudi Arabia is dealing with today. So a lot of the um, conversation when it comes to construction is just who's going to build this. And that question's multifaceted. So on the at the initial stage of things, it's whether you can get sort of designers, engineers, people to come in and uh, and design these things, which is is a challenge but it, it it's a it's a reasonably doable challenge in the fact that the number of people you need is is not that great when you compare it to doing the actual construction 
as we're moving now into more onto on-site and construction, the question's moving along to, you know, which contractors are going to do this. This has been a, uh, is an ongoing, uh, an ongoing challenge. So traditionally when markets ramp up, if we look at Dubai in 2003, Dubai benefited quite a bit from the Asian financial crisis in the late 90s. So there was quite a lot of Asian players that came into Dubai in the early days. And you've seen various waves of contractors from other parts of the world coming into the region, depending on what's happening in the home markets and, and what's happening in the GCC in terms of project activity. So for Saudi Arabia, that means a couple of things. They need to build up local capacity, which if you remember, they invested in four, well, PIF invested in four contractors earlier on this year. And also this ongoing campaign to try and make the market more attractive to international contractors to come in to try and beef up that resource um, resource pool even more. So that's on the contractor side. And then uh, further down from there, there's a, there's a people question. You know, where do, where do the people come from? Traditionally, the, the GCC is very reliant on South Asian, uh, South Asian labor. I expect that'll continue. I think that, that there's a lot of um, resource available there. I, I think possibly some of the pinch points are going to be on uh, how skilled and how quickly you can train uh, a lot of those people up. And then some of the sort of lower to middle management positions where you need you need people with experience, I think, could be a pinch point as well. But the, the, the resource question is not going to go away. Uh, you know, we've got a, there's a finite amount of resource and there's a lot of new projects that keep being launched and moving in towards construction. So that question is going to be continually asked for um, the foreseeable future. On top of that, I think what you're seeing, just to get down to the sort of the, the nitty gritty on construction, you're seeing Saudi Arabia's relationships with the construction market changing quite a lot. So in the past, it's generally been a market where you've hired someone and paid them a fixed price lump sum contract. And it's been very much a, a sort of master slave relationship between the project client and the contractor. To make Saudi Arabia more attractive, they're becoming a bit more sort of uh, partnership focused. So you'll work with a contractor, maybe help develop the design, have some contractual conditions that will make the, the, the project more attractive to a contractor than it would be if he was taking on all the risk up front. So that relationship is very dynamic at the moment. So it's it, it's very interesting to watch and it's, it's going to continue to be interesting to watch. Let's talk a little bit about PIF, PIF and the markets. And you, you know, you were up at Neom and you, and you saw not only the construction, but all the other ancillary, you know, initiatives ongoing that aren't, aren't necessarily construction oriented, but PIF, PIF seems to be involved in all of these areas and all of these phases. And, you know, we had a very interesting, um, uh, expert from YCP Solidians, Jack Fowler, come on some time ago, talk about the changing contracting environment. And when PIF comes in, generally, best practices improve, policies improve. You know, things is this is this accurate to say? Are they are they are they having a good impact in that regard on sectors? Yeah, I, I think they're, they're, they're operating slightly differently, aren't they? They're, they're no longer a, a government body, which tends to be, um, governments tend to be a little bit sluggish, resistant to change, and they're acting more of a, okay, they're, they're not pure private sector, but they're operating in a more private sector way and bringing in a lot more expertise from other places. So I think that's the that's the change that you're seeing. Plus, on top of that, they have to, they have to do things differently. You know, they've got some very... Um, 
very ambitious targets that they want to hit. And if they if they did adopt the attitude that they want to do things exactly the same way that things have been done in the past, then they're simply not going to achieve their ambitions. So I think there's necessity there, which is, is quite important as well. Uh, with regard to PIF, have you, I've tried to put, I mean, we've talked about it on the show. I've tried to put a finger on it. it, it, it have we seen something like this before? An entity that is responsible not only for you know external investment but also driving domestic sectors, you know, transforming you know uh, non-business sections, you know, basically you know leading the charge in tourism, aviation, you name it, construction. I mean, just it's out there in front on all of these markets, and with the intent to eventually pull back and let private sector fill some of the gaps. Uh, short answer: No, we haven't seen it before. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, you know, if, if, if we look around the region for, uh, you know, comparisons, you know, you've got some very large sovereign wealth funds there that Kuwait Investment Authority invests outside Kuwait. They've got a mandate not to get involved in Kuwait. It's a, it's a balanced fund, right? It invests outside of Kuwait. In Abu Dhabi, you've got Adia, which tends not to do too much in Abu Dhabi. You do have some other funds in Abu Dhabi, such as Mabadala, which will do more things domestically. Um, Dubai, okay, is a much smaller place and a, a much smaller economy and doesn't have the oil wealth behind it. Dubai had quite a lot of um, sovereign wealth vehicles that were doing a lot of domestic development between 2003 and 2008. But I mean, nothing on the nothing on the scale that the the PIF's doing. So simple, simple answer. No, we haven't. And I, I think it's I think it's actually really difficult for myself as a journalist or for anyone looking at PIF to to really get to grips with everything that they're doing. I would I would say there's not many weeks go by where I don't hear of something that they're doing that I didn't know about, which could be you know, a completely left field um, uh, sector. So, for example, developing the camel milk industry. Yeah, the, the, yeah. There's all sort. There's all sorts of things that they're getting engaged with. Um, so, managing that must be must be incredibly difficult. And the bandwidth challenge has got to be enormous. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I mean, I know you guys often say you get criticised, but I mean, golf. I mean, golf must have tied up. Uh, a huge amount of um, resource and thinking for um, uh, about a year already. And that's just one very small little thing when you look at the, the, the whole picture. Can you talk a little bit about the Numeraba project? And to me, it seems sort of like that's one of those projects where there's all of these other projects going on in Riyadh specifically, but this sort of promises a facelift for the capital. And we just saw this week that Bechtel was awarded the uh, uh, project management lead for this uh, literally just a day or two ago. Can you talk a little bit about that project? I think it's really exciting from the outside looking in. Is 2030 realistic as a finishing point for it? Um, just let us know sort of what's happening with it now and, and where's it going? Yeah, they've awarded some early works contracts, so it, it, it's proceeding in the way you would expect it to. I'll answer that question in a kind of roundabout way, and, and I think it brings in some other issues which I think are important to discuss about. I think, I think, yeah, they will deliver something by 2030. Um, and I think this is the question that, that, that keeps coming back with Saudi Arabia with a lot of these giga projects, whether it be NEOM or, or whatever, is what's actually going to be delivered in 2030? And, and what's, what's that successful outcome going to look like? I think a lot of the markets looking there and saying, well, 
that fly through schematic that I've seen on social media, that's 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 what it's going to look like in 2030. These things are huge long-term projects. Again, just to use Dubai as an example, there's still construction work going on at Dubai Marina, and Dubai Marina was launched in the very early 2000s. So that's been a 20-year program of work. If we look at the Palm Jumeirah, there's still the last plots are being developed. Again, a 20-year program of work. So these these projects take an awful long time for them to to be fully, even close to being fully built out. So really what does being delivered by 2030 mean and i think this is one of the things that's you know just managing some of that expectation i think i think there's going to be um certain segments of the the media in particular will look at it and say well you haven't delivered everything that you you said you were going to do it was meant to be a new city that cost 500 billion dollars and you haven't done that so therefore it's a failure but at the same time they've set the sort of the building blocks and, and and built some of the critical elements that's going to enable that to happen over the long term. So I think it really comes down to this question of um, phasing and, you know, this question of what does success look like? I mean, you know, even if they build a small percentage of what some of these master plans involve, it's still been a, a, a massive amount of work that's been delivered in a very short space of time. So the new Marabba falls into falls into that category for sure. You know, are they going to build all of it by 2030? No. Are they going to build the first few elements? Maybe fuse, perhaps a little bit unfair, but they're going to build key elements that's going to enable that master plan to be developed over over time. And and I think that's what's going to happen. But this this question of are they going to finish it by 2030? It's going to be really interesting to see how that pans out. And the answer is that they're going to get criticised from one side and on the other side, there's going to be people saying that this has been a tremendous success. Look how much they've delivered. And, you know, the, the usual people that disagree on these things will will have their positions probably before we a long time before we get to 2030. How likely are they to proceed ahead with the North Pole? Because um, we've, we've seen that for a while, the sort of, you know, taller than Burj Khalifa tower that has had a, co- a contest recently for design. I mean, is that is that what have you heard about that? Is that happening? And, and has it moved forward at all outside of what we've seen in the media? Um, the, 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 there's been design competitions. Um, I think they I think there's a feeling as who will end up designing it. My. Uh, it's a difficult one. I mean, it's it, it's an incredibly tall building that's incredibly challenging. Uh, I think it would be great to see that that, that built. Whether that will uh, proceed or not, I don't know. It's always very difficult to call these these construction projects before they move into construction. And yeah. and we know from experience that there's been very tall towers built and, and stalled halfway through. So, uh, yeah, uh, I, I think we need to just... Uh, just wait and see. And again, that comes back to the, you know, what's happening with the contractor market and things like that. I mean, a, a, a contractor uh, can afford to pick and choose his work in Saudi Arabia a little bit at the moment. And, and a project just by the nature of the engineering is very, very risky. Mm-hmm. So they, they might prefer to to work elsewhere. So there's lots of moving parts there. So I wouldn't want to, uh, I wouldn't want to take a call on that personally. Yeah. Um, I, I, back to your your comment about expectations. If this were a blog uh, or social media, I would upvote that a million times. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, managing expectations, and and I think you put it. You know, Saudi Arabia is expected to be criticized one way or another, but 
you know, the reality has nothing to do with full, full achievement of the goals in 2030. It has everything to do with, you know, what direction you're headed and how far along the path you are. Yeah. I mean, just having a discussion about it. I mean, you could argue it would be a terrible thing if they delivered everything on 2030. That would mean everyone just get, you know, thanks, job done. Let, let's, let, 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 let's get, <laughs> yeah. you know, let, let, let's just go back to bed. So, you know, in some ways it's better that, you know, it is part finished and there's more to come. So, you know, there's lots of different ways to look at it. And, you know, a lot of the time people have their own uh, preconceptions that, you know, they're going to, you know, their minds are kind of made up before, uh, before the yes. basket. You know, in terms of big projects in Saudi Arabia, you, in in your article, you've noted top 10 Riyadh plants and Numarabah was at the one. And it's fascinating to watch progress. Uh, so for example, the Red Sea uh, project has moved along. It's almost ready for delivery. Daria Gate has moved along. What's, you know, not even listed in the top 10 here is Kadia, which was early out of the gate. Yeah, that was that was a, a slight editorial decision. I mean, we're we're fortunate in the fact that there's so many projects in Riyadh. We decided just from a geographical point of view, just to say, Kitty is kind of a little oh, bit so too far out of town. So it wasn't, it wasn't, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, but you know, that doesn't that doesn't really um, belittle the scale of the project at all, frankly. But again, just two thoughts. That's a testimony to the to the number of things that are going on at the same time. And also the fact that some of these will, all these move at their own pace. Yeah. And, and you know, you can't put a, you know, a, 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 the same template on all of them. Uh, it is interesting. Yeah. And I also laugh with Lucian. Lucian and I laugh because like Lucian loves the huge, the huge, you know, ambitious project like the North Pole and like the cube in Numaraba. And I'm going, well, you know, the thing about Numaraba is, you know, that's a hundred thousand new housing units and a whole, you know, landscaped, you know, thought out community and a big important part of town. But that cube and the and cube. Is, <laughs> no, but this is a fascinating thing about Saudi Arabia and what we've dealt with nonstop with the 966. So here's the glitzy announcement. What's the reality and what's meaningful? Yeah, and I, I mean, we've, we've talked a lot about the Giga projects, but there's an awful lot of other uh, project activity, which is which is going on in the kingdom as well, which I think is really important to talk about. So, you know, you've got the railways, a lot of railway projects, so things like Lambridge that are, are starting to move forward after a long time. You've got additional bits of metro work, for example, in Riyadh. There's a lot of things happening with rail. Obviously, there's rail at Neom as well, and also more sort of smaller rail networks within various um, various giga projects. So there's that infrastructure piece. You've got an awful lot of power generation. You'll have seen in the press over the last week, there's been a lot of talk about Saudi Arabia's nuclear power ambitions, a lot of solar power being developed. So that's on the, the sort of power side. Wastewater, that there's new wastewater networks being put through, also uh, desalination projects and water transmission, roads, which tend not to get some of the headlines that uh, some of the other projects don't because they don't kind of leap off the page with you know very, very fancy designs. But there's an awful lot of that development that goes along with it, which, you know, is absolutely crucial to what's going on. And we haven't even mentioned oil and gas yet, which is, you know, traditionally the largest project story um, within Saudi Arabia, where there's a lot of investment going on. And then on top of that, a lot of um, downstream development and things like petrochemicals and then related to that other industrial development. So things like steel plants, shipbuilding, uh, 
so there's a lot of a, a lot of development across uh, across all the project sectors and just to perhaps finish that little uh, piece you've then got all the transport infrastructure as well which i mentioned rail but you've also got ports being developed and and airports so there's it's really a, a very broad suite of um projects that are being developed on top of the the sort of the glitzy more real estate focused pieces that that you, that you tend to see the imagery for and you know falling under the vision too is also the revamp of their their academic and their educational environment you know in yes. order you know trying to turn out you know qualified saudis which is a generational thing but they have to start now and they've been gone and, and you know just another thing that falls under this umbrella of vision 2030 you know speaking to your how broad and multifaceted it is yeah 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 uh, and i mean i i think it's a very interesting market to uh, to watch at the moment it, it you know I, I try to explain to people from outside the region when they ask me i say you know it, it it's almost like watching positive change in real time which is quite often when you see countries change very rapidly it tends to be negative there'll be a revolution or something like that it's quite unusual to see positive change in a country happening almost in real time in front of your eyes you know it, Every time you go out and have a look around, something's changed significantly. Um, so yeah, an awful lot of change going on. Like I said, I think really the, the important question for that 2030 question is just what are people's expectations and how are those expectations managed? And I think that's really perhaps the most important question that's going to need to, does it need to be answered? It, no, but it's, it's the that's going to be the thing that I think is going to dominate a lot of a lot of what goes on as we we lead up to 2030. Yeah, if we if we if we take the line for example uh, at Neon, where there, there won't be a 170 kilometer long building delivered by 2030. You know, that's that's beyond the, the realms of what's possible. However, there will be a significant section of the line. Which is uh, which is delivered, which will be an enormous undertaking. Is that a success or a failure? I'm sure there's going to be people that turn around and say, "Well, you haven't built the whole 170 kilometers of the line, therefore it's a failure." And there'll be a lot of people, certainly the people involved in the project, and a lot of a lot of other people will say, "Well, hang on, let's just take a step back for a moment. They've just built something that is absolutely unprecedented in scale." And you're still saying it's a failure because you haven't done uh, done the full 170 kilometers. That's the kind of discussion we're going to be uh, having over the, the the next few years. And I don't think that the two will ever fully agree. Um, but I guess that's good. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, let me ask you a, a sort of an intangible question, sort of based on your deep mm -hmm. experience in the region. <clears throat> and we followed Saudi Arabia for a long time, pre Vision 2030, pre. So, so we've, we've seen the trajectory and the transition. It, it seems to me, and I think Lucian will agree, that the level of confidence uh, that Saudis feel about their direction, their, their the regime, their diplomatic position, their, their, uh, how they're perceived across the globe, seems to be really as high as I can ever recall it. Yep, I would agree with that. Uh, for me, it, uh, I'm going to sound a little bit old-fashioned here, but I think the oil price is still quite important in, in this whole discussion. I think if we 
uh, okay, oil prices dropped incredibly low during uh, during COVID, but we were in a position then when a lot of these major projects in Saudi Arabia hadn't moved into construction, so the the bills weren't really that great. If we imagine a scenario in two years' time where oil prices drop to thirty dollars a barrel and all these projects are at something like critical mass, then the bills are going to be enormous and revenues are not going to be as great. I think that's going to be quite a quite a challenge to to manage if that happens. Agreed. I mean, the 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 term we've used on the show is Saudi Arabia is having a moment, and that especially twenty twenty two when you know eight point seven you know GDP growth and and so we've got a downturn. They're going to run a deficit this year. Uh, they still keep plugging along, but you know this sort of sort of where the where you see how uh, they respond in adverse situations, like you just outlined. Yeah. And, and this, going back to your resource question about who's going to build all these projects, put yourself in the shoes of a contractor. He's going to sign a contract for a job that's, say, three years long. So he's got, he's he's assuming he's going to get paid for his work for the next three years. If he's asking the same question as what I've just highlighted, saying, well, what's going to happen if the oil price falls? It, is the market going to revert to what it's done in the past where it delays paying on bills, et cetera? I'm going to be quite significantly exposed here, and that's a, that's a problem. Now, at the moment, there's a lot of noise coming out saying, no, things are very different now. These are long-term projects. We're committed to it. But a lot of people have got to take a leap of faith over that time period going forward, and not everybody will be prepared to do it. Mm-hmm. Last question, at least on my side. Can you tell us, and I'm sorry to jump, we were jumping a little bit around here because this is such an exciting conversation. Can you tell us a little bit about the Sports Boulevard? Um, you wrote a piece on it in the most previous edition of Mead. Um, it just it looks cool, and they're, I've seen that site where they're starting to move dirt around. Tell us about that. Yeah, the, 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 I mean it's a it's a, a band of development that that crosses Riyadh, and, and what's interesting about it is there's just all these assets that are basically going to be there, a sort of public realm for people to enjoy. So it's really going to transform the the lifestyle of people in Riyadh. So there's going to be a lot of things for people to engage in sporting activities, but a lot of buildings and sort of civic type structures with, um, you know, public spaces to congregate and things. And a lot of that involves putting the infrastructure underground and out of sight. I mean, Riyadh's very much a city that's car dominated and highway dominated. And it's very difficult to certainly on foot to get around the city across some of the highways. So that's going to just change the nature of the city. And I think that's the way, urban planning in general is going across the world, isn't it? Which we're, we're trying to move away from car-based societies. You see things like King Salman Park and the, and the Sports Boulevard and, and so much of the uh, new thinking. And we've had some really fascinating architects and urban designers on the show. Can Riyadh be saved <laughs> in terms of making it a livable city? Because you're exactly right. You know, it's a car city. Yeah, I mean, I, I think to go back to the the question we said there, I mean, they're looking to double the size of the population. Now, normally when that happens in cities, it's kind of unchecked urban development and it's it's very messy and you get a lot of, um, you know, random development on the periphery of a city. I think what they're trying to do in Riyadh is, is build some things that are a lot better while at the same time try and grow, try and grow the city. So, yeah, I think it's it's going to be a very different city, a very different city going forward. And just to go back to a, a comparison with Dubai, 
Uh, when I moved to Dubai in 2003, the pavements were pretty bad. It, the, the walking experience was was not great. I'm not saying the, work, the walking experience is perfect in Dubai now, but it's a lot better than it used to be. And, you know, there's things like cycle tracks, a lot more pedestrian crossings. So, yeah, it, it can be saved. I mean, it, it, there's a lot of there's a lot of change that can be introduced to do things and it's not just on major projects it's a lot of it's it's a lot of smaller things that need to be um improved as well and in some ways they're in some ways they're more important than the big projects and in keeping with the theme because i think it's important because i didn't mention the metro in um terms of improving the quality of life in Riyadh, and um you know, the the comparison point, and this is from your article, the comparison point uh, for 2022 investment and in, in contracts, you know, the, the enormous amount, 20, $22 billion, was 2013, which is really a big bump only because that Metro contract was signed. So, yep. but it's important, you know, so that's 2013. It will probably be delivered this year or shortly. So roughly 10 years. That's a reasonable, it's a, it's a reasonable timeline. And, you know, Going again, going back to your, you know, that everybody needs to maintain a sense of perspective about what it takes to accomplish what's trying to be done. Yeah. And on top of that, what often happens with construction projects while they're a bit late and while they're being delivered, there's a lot of, oh, well, that's a complete, uh, a complete failure. Look at that thing that was meant to be delivered two years ago. And what I remind myself frequently is once these things open and people start using them, Everybody forgets about the the, the issues that that, that that went on in in the construction. That, it's not entirely true in some other markets where you you might get sort of um, parliamentary inquiries and things. So it might, it, it, but generally speaking, uh, uh, people tend to forget about the issues during construction once the once the project's open, providing you've delivered a project of of good quality and uh, and people use it. Yeah. It's going to be interesting with Riyadh having all these new areas that are all hip, like what the coolest area is going to be right now. It seems like it's calfed because it's almost done. I know they're expanding now, but then you'll have Daria, you'll have the new Baraba, you'll have the new downtown. It's going to be interesting when all this comes online. Mr. Colin Foreman, journalist and editor for the Middle East Economic Digest. Follow him on Twitter at Mead Colin. This was awesome. In fact, if you just want to hang on, we'll just keep this thing going for another few <laughs> hours and i think we could just get, cover new material during the whole time but this was a privilege thank you so much colin but like i said I, I did mean it when i said i'm a fan of the show and great stuff thanks very much that was our conversation with colin foreman thank him for his time that was terrific richard hopefully the first of many appearances on the 966 he's he's the bomb he's excellent knows his stuff great Time for Yella. Yella. Saudi in a minute. Yella. Saudi. I can't make my voice that low. Maybe that's why Colin was so surprised <laughs> at what I looked bad. like. Yeah. <laughs> well, you have long flowing blonde hair and you're a surfer. So <laughs> uh, it's so funny. Uh, okay. <laughs> all right, then. Yes. I found your voice very, uh, very nice to listen to. And it's thank you. It's, it you sounds have to. exactly you, appropriate. You do it so much that I'm. I hope it's not great <laughs> to you. <laughs> um, Yalla number one. The Kingdom of Saudi Arabia assumed command of a multinational task force, CTF Sentinel, that monitors merchant shipping through key strategic maritime choke points in the region. 
CTF Sentinel is the operational task force for the international marine security construct, an 11-nation international naval partnership. Headquartered in Bahrain, the IMSC, International Maritime Security Construct, was established in September 2019 and promotes collaboration among member nations to deter threats and reassure regional mariners in and around the Strait of Hormuz and Bab al-Mandab. Its operational task force, CTF Sentinel, was established a few months later to patrol maritime activity in the region. Current members include Albania, Bahrain, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Romania, Saudi Arabia, Seychelles, UAE, United Kingdom, and the United States. With the Seychelles providing the the bulk of the security and defense weight to that. Uh, in I, think, I think the Seychelles in this context is equivalent to Ethiopia and the recent BRICS yeah. expansion. <laughs> and the Seychelles too. Um, <laughs> don't forget the Seychelles. Don't forget the Seychelles, yeah. Um, I just, yeah, this was cool because I thought that this quote from um, the UK Royal Navy Commodore Peter Lawton about what's happening here. This quote was good. He said, quote, I could not think of a finer commander to take the helm of the CTF Sentinel, and it is entirely right that the task force transitions to regional leadership. CTF Sentinel exemplifies the collective power of IMSC's multinational partnerships, and these partnerships will continue to grow under Commodore Al-Lufi's leadership. So this is cool, and I don't, Richard, if you have more to add to this, but it just seems significant that you know, Saudi Arabia regional leader will be taking command of this regional task force. Hundred percent agreed. I mean, you know, the emphasis on the on partnership that term, and you know, the CTF Sentinel mm-hmm. similar CENTCOM has a task force fifty nine that they've stood up. They're standing up, and it's you know we've talked about it on the show. You know, it's it's a whole array of unmanned systems and integrated artificial intelligence. You know, it's got operational hubs in Jordan, Bahrain, but it's intended to be a partnership among these groups and everybody plays their part. And that's a great way to go about it. I mean, it's good for us. It upgrades and improves uh, local capabilities, regional capabilities, you know, and engages uh, key partners on security issues that mean something to them. It's the right way to approach, you know, security relationships in the region. So this is a good, I like this story. Yeah. And, and, and of course this is significant too, because one potential friction point between Saudi Arabia and Iran, especially as they are warming and reestablishing relations, joining BRICS together hand in hand, possibly, is the security and trade in this region. And the U.S. um, government, the Biden administration said, hey, we're going to we're going to beef up some security around here because these ships are getting shaken down and it's by Iranian ships. So this will be interesting, but yeah, I mean, this is an important transition over to the to the Saudis, which is cool. Yeah. Okay, yellow number two. Sorry, I just <laughs> kind of powered down there for a second. Um, yellow number two, new Saudi Arabia coach, Robert Robot. Let me try this again, because I really want to nail this Italian name. New Saudi Arabia coach, Roberto Mancini, is counting on the recent influx of global stars to the Saudi Pro League to help the local players improve. Cristiano Ronaldo and Ballon d'Or holder Karim Benzema headlined the multi-billion dollar project that the Saudi Pro League has become. Quote, if you want to get a good player, you've got to pay. It's important that standout players have joined the Saudi League and are paid a lot because they help the players here improve, Mancini said on Monday during his presentation. Um, you know, we we 
my one big thing this week was on the Saudi Pro League. Talked a lot about this. Not much to add. I mean, they, you know, he's got a challenge. They want to win the, the Asian Cup this year's in January. They haven't won it in 27 years. Um, you know, there's top teams, Japan, South Korea, Australia, but they'd really like to, you know, so he's setting out, you know, these are some of our goals. And and so hopefully, but that's a quick turnaround to, mm-hmm. to mold the team. So anyway, he's got a, you know, he's got a big task in front of him because you've got rising expectations, you know, within Saudi Arabia, you know, you've got all this fever pitch passion about the acquisitions and the new league and a new year uh, and new investment. And there's a real buzz about Saudi professional football. So the expectations will be high. This is like sporting 101. You've been a coach of many sports for your children over the years at all levels, you play better teams to get better. You play with better players to get better in any mm. sport, except for golf, which just can be demoralizing when you play with somebody really good, Because, but you're not really playing against them. It's not really back and forth. There's no offense or defense. It's just whatever. But in sports, you want to get better. You play good teams. You get your butt kicked. You learn from the experience. And that's a little bit about what's happening in the Saudi Pro League. And Mancini's really just saying that, hey, like we've got all these good players in here now. So the local players that are here will get better. Others will come in that are local that will improve the local contingent in the league. Seems to make sense. So um, yeah. I know the Italians are a little upset that he left for Saudi Arabia. I gleaned some <laughs> headlines and they were passionate, let's just say. So, well, you know, the, the Saudis upset a lot of people this transfer season and, you know, more power to them. Um, it, you know, that's that's the way it is, and and you know Saudi Arabia has real goals in terms of up, upgrading the quality of the league. It wants to be a top ten league. It's not 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 now. Um, you know some of that, obviously, performance in in major cups like the Asian Cup and and the World Cup and that sort of thing all contribute to improving the league's ranking. Yeah. Um, Yellow number three. Saudi Arabia's AIDS international holding is set to list in Riyadh. A deal expected to be the kingdom's largest initial public initial public offering this year. AIDS provides oil and gas drilling and production services in the Middle East and North Africa. The company has grown through acquisitions after the PIF, Public Investment Fund, and its majority owners teamed up to take the business private in, two, in 2021. Uh, that deal valued the company at about 5. 5, $516 million. The, the PIF AIDS Investments Holding, the PIF AIDS Investments Holding Limited and Zamon Group Investment Limit, Limited plan to sell shares in the listing. The offering could raise about $1 billion, according to Bloomberg. This is cool because uh, really two reasons. One, it, it could be the hottest, the largest IPO this year in Saudi Arabia, and they waited until later. They were going to do this in the first half of the year and then decided to wait a little bit. So they're gonna do this now, but the IPO market has cooled off in Saudi Arabia this year, just kind of in line with the global trend and they lagged a little bit with that, but less than $900 million has been raised through listings this year in the kingdom, which is an 82% drop from a year ago. So this going on in the fall would be large. And then the other thing that I think this is interesting here, and I think you would agree, is that this is the PIF's playbook. They essentially take companies, invest in them, do some M&A, make them bigger and more valuable, not just because they've acquired companies, but because they've integrated these companies and then list them, sell them, you know. Uh, so 
this this is just the and if the IPO is subscribed or oversubscribed, it will be a win for the PIF. So yeah, I mean this is right down the middle for them. Um yes, a hundred percent. You know, one of the lead stories um in today's review, today's edition of the Susic Review is the Saudi shift in investment priorities, which is reserves to a 2009 low. So, you know, net foreign assets fell to just over $400 billion, which is, as I said, as low as it's been in, in 2009. Some of that has to do with reduced, you know, oil revenue, but a lot of it has to do with change investment portfolio and, and, and style and priorities. And they're looking for more active, possibly more risky, but, you know, greater return investments. And you got to like this one. I mean, you buy in at 2021, in 2021, at roughly 500 million, you turn around in 2023, and you're going to market at roughly a billion. That's a good investment for the PIF. Obviously, Zamo, who's an old line, extremely smart, well-established, you know, uh, holding group in Saudi Arabia, uh, know what they're doing. So everyone's, you know, Back to something we talk about a lot of times. This is the beauty of the Saudi bourse, the Tadawal, and how it's grown and how it's matured. Is there are exits for this? You know, you can invest in 2021 and turn around, and there's a market, you know, to get out two years later. That's essentially doubling your money. Lots of good things in this one. Good stuff. Um, <clears throat> yellow number four. White House officials have notified the Israeli government that a possible normalization deal with Saudi Arabia will, will require them to make, quote, significant concessions, end quote, to the Palestinians. Four U.S. officials with knowledge of the matter told Axios, which just interjecting here has kind of been on fire with the reporting on this issue. They do During a visit to Washington last week by Israel's Minister of Strategic Affairs, Ron Dermer, State Secretary Anthony Blinken reportedly told him that Tel Aviv is, quote, misreading the situation, end quote, if it thinks it won't have to make any concessions over the continued abuses against Palestinians and the theft of their land. <laughs> I love this, you know. So again, you know, refer to, we've had a couple uh, segments on this. And one of the things that has been mentioned a couple times, and and I'm I'm the one who's you know the culprit in this is that you know the pension and the and the pride that the Israeli negotiators take in getting something for nothing, and you can see him setting it up here, and um, I just think this is fascinating messaging. And from the Saudi perspective, you know they recently named an envoy for the first envoy of the Palestinian Authority. Um, they you know they they have, I guess the. Uh, the PLO leadership, the Palestinian Authority, sorry, Palestinian Authority leadership is coming to Riyadh in the next week or so to sort of say, you know, can we make sure we're plugged in on this and any negotiations? And I just think it's it's really important messaging to Israel, you know, is that nope? You know, whatever you think's happening here in terms of, if you think it's going to be like the UAE Bahrain you know, Abraham Accords agreement where you really just sort of made promises, nothing hard. Um, that's, that's not the case. And, and for Saudi Arabia to say, all right, we're open to getting back involved in Palestine. This is a big deal. I mean, over the years, Saudi Arabia's, you know, contributed more than $5 billion into Palestinian causes. And this is direct support for Palestinian Authority. But it began cutting back in 2016 because 
you know, concerns about incompetence and corruption. And, and a, I mean, and, you know, went to zero in 2021 after long, long, many years of very generous aid. So, you know, getting right from the Palestinian Authority perspective, getting right with Saudi Arabia, especially uh, in the midst of these negotiations, wherever they are, we don't know where they are, these negotiations, it is important. And I think it's important messaging to Israel that you're not going to walk away with, you know, a handshake and, and, and a wave at promises. It's got to be something real if we're going to consider it for real. And I love, by the way, this is a, especially with the current Israeli politics. And this is like throwing sort of firecrackers into a fire or cherry bombs into a fire. You know, they go off and they cause all sorts of problems because you've got, you've got, you know, Ron Dermer sort of being told by Anthony Blinken saying, look, I don't know what you're thinking, but something's got to be real if there's, there's going to be any chance for this. And, you know, and then this goes back to the, to the, to the Israel's political community and you, know, you have people saying, oh, no, no, no. You know, Dermer says, we just we just are considering concessions on the nuclear thing, not anything on the Palestinians. And then, you know, Benjamin Netanyahu says, hey, wait a second, we're not even considering anything on nuclear programs for our neighbors. So, you know, it, it's, 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 it's a really interesting exercise in, a, in, in recognizing that the Israeli politic and, and the governing body are odds anyway. They don't agree on anything. Um, I think it's a recognition on the Saudi part that, look, I don't even know, you know, if we do a deal with them, can they even keep it? But then throwing, like I said, then throwing cherry bombs into this fire by saying, look, you know, anything with us has to do something real on Palestine. It sort of smokes things out. And I think it gives you an idea of, of you know, the, the reality of this, the possibility of this. But anyway, this is all amazing theater. I think this one is you, Richard, and also oh, the, time. the uh, I'm having a mosquito treatment going on here, and I'm trying to keep no, my mic no. muted because it's super loud. Is this loud. five? Um, this is five, yeah. Yellen number five. Saudi Arabia is considering bids to build a nuclear power station from countries including China, France, and Russia as the kingdom seeks to sway the U.S. over a sensitive security pact. The kingdom, which is the world's largest oil exporter, has long sought its own nuclear, civil nuclear capability and has made U.S. assistance with the program a key demand and a potential deal to normalize relationships with Israel. A breakthrough in relations between Israel and Saudi Arabia would be a major diplomatic victory for President Joe Biden, but Washington has balked at Saudi Arabia's demand for there to be no restrictions on enriching its own uranium. I think this is interesting because this just ties so well into the previous uh, yellow that we just did. But it's like, and sorry, you can hear this, but um, <laughs> it's the it's the backpack blower types, which is like brrr, like right yeah, next exactly. to the window. So sorry, everybody listening to this. And actually, I don't have too much to add here. I just kind of thought this was an interesting one because there is so much in the air here that it's you know you've got Saudi Arabia saying we're gonna kind of watch this play out play out, but we have our own priorities. We're not going to wait around for two large democracies with a ton of checks and balances going on to figure their things out when we have a domestic priority. So I think this is well within Saudi Arabia's rights. I also feel like this is the U.S. should figure something out if it can and maybe to get a one, two, three agreement. I don't know how it would work, but like this should go to Westinghouse or a U.S. company. We're biased, of course, but I don't know if it's going to happen. 
Well, this is one of the, those, you know, the devil's in the details. And, and, you know, the Saudis want autonomy over the entire nuclear fuel cycle. We know that. But what's curious about this discussion in the first place is that Saudi Arabia has already narrowed down its final vendors for any, they, they want to build two, start on two new, new nuclear uh, projects. And uh, there's no, you know, there's no American candidate. I mean, right now it's the China National Nuclear Corporation, South Korea's Korea Electric Power, KEPCO, Russia's uh, Rosatom. How do you pronounce that? Rosatom? Rosatom? What you're asking me, <laughs> the guy that butchers, <laughs> butchers everything. Right, France's EDF. Right, yeah. My point is this. Russia's probably out of the picture because of Ukraine. EDF has its own problems. It's really down to the China National Nuclear Corporation and KEPCO, the South Korean uh, nuclear group company. Um, so like I said, unless they want to back it up and put Westinghouse back into the process, which they are no longer in, I, I, what are we talking about in U.S. support? Now, the thing that's really interesting here, and one way to get around this is South Korea. So South Korea and... KEPCO, rather, KEPCO and Westinghouse uh, are in a dispute. You know, Westinghouse says, you know, uh, for their the, this type of nuclear reactor, KEPCO's use Westinghouse to IP, uh, intellectual property and technology. So they've gone to court, and now they've gone to taking it out of litigation and putting it in arbitration, International Chamber of Commerce in Vienna. So, so it's possible that Westinghouse could lose this in which case, South Korea can move ahead with no no legal ramifications. And so, in other words, um, Saudi Arabia can engage KEPCO, South Korea, in essence, a U.S.-sanctioned, U.S.-friendly, and the U.S. would be involved in some way, uh, engagement that can allow them to move ahead on the civilian nuclear part without any of the one, two, three problems. That, that may be a misreading of the situation. All I'm saying is, is, as with so many things on the discussion, there's details that have yet to be, you know, cleared out and and resolved. And uh, I know I'd like to see us involved with their nuclear program because it's a long-term, highly in capital, highly, you know, it's it's an intense relationship that extends over decades. And uh, but we'll see. You know, it's it's very hard to to figure out where it might fit or where it might fall. But right now. We don't even have a horse in the race. So it'll be interesting how it turns out. Yeah, we're definitely hampered. It seems like it might be South Korea. That's totally, so, you know, I actually have no idea. But like if I were choosing, I'd go with South Korea because, uh, you know, they have their stuff together. But I mean, France, a leader in the space too. So it's just interesting. Well, and they almost, they, they, the South Korea has done this Baraka. A nuclear plant in the UAE is about finished. I mean, so that's a that's a it's an example here on the ground exhibit A. You know, we can do this. We've done it in the region. It's a compelling argument. You know, it's yet we don't know what the Westinghouse relationship will be, and also you know if there's a Westinghouse relationship, what that triggers in terms of U.S. Uh, requirements in terms of nonproliferation and so on. Hundred percent. Yellow number six, Saudi Arabia's newest airline, Riyadh Air, plans to focus on the niche markets market for flights to and from the kingdom rather than competing with its Gulf neighbors' vast hubs, its CEO has said in an, ex in an explanation of its, quote, super aggressive growth plans. 
Tony Douglas was speaking after the airline in March announced its first aircraft order for at least 39 Boeing 787 wide-body jets with options for 33 more. Riyadh Air is also in talks with the manufacturers for a fleet of narrow-body jets, which Douglas said should allow Riyadh Air to serve more than 100 destinations by the end of the decade. Uh, yeah, interesting stuff. I mean, this is his point is that you know most of the, the Qatar, Dubai, you know their transit locations, and I, you know, he's saying, you know, I'm we're going to be servicing people who are coming here, you know. And so that's a big bet. It's a big bet. Are there going to be enough people to come there outside of pilgrims who are going to be served primarily by Saudia? Um, and, uh, and, and you know, they, I'm sure they do the market surveys and the studies, and they've looked at this, you know, deep, deeply. Uh, but uh, that's an interesting distinction. And, uh, again, yet another thing that Saudi Arabia has embarked upon that's going to be fun to watch. And we talked about their liberty earlier this year it just is cool and he, he and they just they also recently announced a sp- uh, partnership with a spanish football club i believe spain um yeah if that's not, right if not italy but anyway so he's making waves in the news and this was just an interesting kind of pivot from what everybody thought was going to happen so pretty interesting um good stuff Good stuff. Richard, good episode. 101. Look at us just hitting the ground after 100. We didn't take a two-week break to party. We just (laughs) headed right back to work. Here we are grinding again with a great conversation this week. Great conversation next week as well and the weeks after. So thank you to everybody for being here. This is awesome. Come back. Come back. We we really enjoy doing this and really appreciate your listening. And it's a blast to do it with you, Lucian. This is great. Yes, likewise. This is fun. We'd be probably doing it anyway. Maybe not so formal, but we would be doing it anyway. (laughs) So um, thanks, everybody, for being here. And we'll see you next week.